everybody wanted their own volare in their own language. Welcome to the Euro What, episode 166 for the week of August 22nd, 2022. I'm Mike McComb, and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Hey, Mike. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. And this week, we'll be talking about the Italian worldwide smash Volare. It's been a busy couple of weeks. A lot of news has happened, but we do have a correction from our last episode. Ben, do you want to take this? Yeah, I do, because it was my vocal misstep of... I had been saying Queen of England last episode, and we were corrected, and correctly so, that it's Queen of the United Kingdom. Like, in my defense, I was also calling her Liz, so... <laughs> we mean, you know, disrespect. It's, yeah, just sometimes the shorthand gets ahead of us at times. But definitely let us know about these sort of corrections. This mm-hmm. one listener reached out on Instagram. You can hit our Instagram at EuroWhat. We're also on Twitter at EuroWhat. And you can also hit our Facebook page as well. One of the first big things to happen in the last couple of weeks is we have our first artist for next year's Eurovision. Israel has done their standard journey with any news regarding Eurovision, which is there was there there was like a big announcement and then I at the time I had been like, is this to get ahead of a leak? And it was like, no, it was to get it was ahead of them actually signing their artist properly. Israel had announced that Noah Carell would be their representative at Eurovision. The next day, she said, um, I haven't confirmed, but she has come back. She has confirmed she will be representing Israel at Eurovision. And yeah, a little bit of information about Noah. She's a singer. She's an actress. She was a judge on Israel's Got Talent. She's considered one of Israel's biggest pop stars right now. She's had four number one songs on the Israel charts the last few years. She signed with Atlantic and WME here in the States. I think that's probably why Israel was so excited to announce this is, hi, we are sending our number one pop star to Eurovision. Interesting play here. I'll Mm -hmm. be curious to see how this ends up forcing the hands of other countries or if it does. Everybody's just, that's nice. Uh, of course, like whenever we get an announcement, the first place I go to is Famous Birthdays. And yep, she does have a profile on there. Yeah, she's only 21, but uh, she's been like doing music and like YouTube stuff since she was 14. She's got a background there. She is the number one person with the first name Noah. Uh, oh, good. I was very much hoping that was the case, because if not, what's going on? She's the number three singer born in Israel, number 12 person born in Israel, I love this. (laughs) I love the categorization on this site so much. Taxonomy is important. Yeah. We will learn more about the song, the selection, all of that in the coming weeks, months, almost a year, because it is only August. At least they're not doing what like Cypress did last year and be like, hello, we're sending this person. The song will be titled this. They're at least sitting on whatever is happening. Possibly because we don't have songs yet. It's just, we've, we're have we sending this person more info to come. Maybe they're getting their ducks in a row for once. So. <laughs> Watch this space. And then I feel like the confirmation of Noah got the Friday press release deal just because the previous day had been, hello, we have a short list of all the cities that are currently under contention for Eurovision 2023. There are seven cities still being considered. Those seven cities are Birmingham, Glasgow, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, and Sheffield. None of them are London. Yeah, I'm not 
all that surprised. I was under the impression that London was a perfunctory bid. There are, yeah, there are other beautiful places in the United Kingdom to go. Yeah, sort of like how Amsterdam was really not a major consideration when Netherlands was hosting. So, so yeah, we were, there was too much tourism right now. We, need we to yeah, we out. already had so many events, and like I had read a, a news piece just even when these seven cities were announced. Regardless of where Eurovision is held next year, the city hosting things is going to need to cancel slash move events that are already planned for the venue. Do you have any favorites out of this list? I do love that it, it feels like we are going sort of northern UK with a lot of this. And as you were listing the cities, I was quietly thinking about the the song It's Grim Up North by the KLM. And, and yet, like, nothing... No Wigan on the list. So it's fine. Uh, I'm kind of rooting for Glasgow, personally. I, just Scottish Eurovision, please. I think that's where I'm at as well. I don't really know much about any of the other cities... Just know that they're big cities. So <laughs> oh, Yeah, like, I would not be mad about Manchester, would not be mad about Liverpool. Birmingham is at the bottom of my list because they hosted the last time the UK hosted, even though that was many years ago at this point. Didn't they just host the Commonwealth Games as well? Yes. Yeah, so it, it would be weird to have, like, such big events happening in the exact same location, but at the same time, they've just proved that they can do that. <laughs> On the other hand, recency bias. We just had a big thing here. It was great. But also, there's part of me that just loves the weird, the secret wish board fulfillment of Glasgow's arena standing in for the venue in the Eurovision movie, launching into being that venue actually hosting real Eurovision. There's a strong chance that next year's slogan could be Perfect Harmony. Oh, man. oh, just at this point, just lean into it. Just lean into it. Just like the slogan is Perfect Harmony. We are hosting it in the Glasgow Arena. Yes. Yeah, it'll make their job a lot easier. So we've already got all the banners made. So. Because <laughs> I'm on Snap. Snap, which is continuing to climb charts all over the world. It's been really fascinating seeing how the song has been growing, particularly in the U.S. It has debuted on Billboard's Bubbling Under chart at 22. And yeah, the Bubbling Under, it's a weird chart. It's not like the plus section of the Hot 100. It's songs that have not charted on the Hot 100 yet, but it's not like ranking 101 through 125. If you've been on the Hot 100, you're not on the Bubbling Under chart. And there's kind of a predictive quality about it, too. Yeah, there's like a sense that these are the ones to watch. They're not charting, but they're moving in a way that suggests that they will be charting soon, potentially. Yeah, this episode is dropping the same day as this week's Billboard chart. So who knows? It could crack into the Hot 100 at this point. It's doing huge numbers on Spotify still. It was number 19 on the weekly global chart. It's been in the top 100 of the U.S. Daily chart. And yeah, it's still moving up, which is pretty awesome. As I was checking all the various sites before we recorded today, it's currently number 26 on the UK top 40. So it's making moves there as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my office now has speakers in the office and our office manager will pick various Spotify default playlists throughout the day just to have on in the background. It very rarely intersects with my own musical listening taste. But I would not be surprised if I hear this over the office speakers at some point, because it feels like it, it, it slots in very well for those playlists. Awesome. Yeah, so this actually kind of leads into our main topic for this week, talking about Eurovision songs that go international. I am so excited to talk about this. You have no idea. <laughs> I, I am slightly aware. I've mostly just been feeding off of your excitement every time you have mentioned this episode. I am also excited. 
I don't want to oversell it, but this is maybe my favorite thing that I've researched for the show. To get started, what is your familiarity with Valare? Like, I remember in the house, one of the CDs that we had was like a 50s compilation with somebody, and I'm not sure if it's Domenico Madugno or not, singing Volare, just because it was a song uh, from from like the late 50s. And like, the reason I don't know if it's Domenico Madugno or not, because I know that's like from reading a bunch of Stereo Gum stuff, that that's just sort of the era where just like everybody sang like all of the songs and just like pumped out like three albums a year. If I remember correctly, this one gets like a bunch of Grammys at like the first Grammy Awards. We're going to start our story in July of 1957. The two main characters we're going to work with at this point are Franco Migliacci and Domenico Modugno. Both of them were artists. Migliacci was focusing more on cinema and the visual arts, while Modugno was more of the performance side as an actor, radio presenter, and what's called an urlatore. Uh, which roughly translates to howler. He, he's a bit of a yeller. So. Okay. <laughs> there are a number of versions of the story of the origin of the song. The version that I like the most, which also came from a biography on Miliachi's website, was that the two were supposed to travel to the beach for some fun in the sun. But Madunio was running late and ended up standing up Miliachi. So he returned home. Popped open a bottle of Chianti and ended up taking a nap after a couple of drinks. And if we're being honest, I think I would have chosen that route rather than going to the beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like a fun like wine nap afternoon, sign me up. But when Miliachi woke up, he was looking at a couple of prints of paintings by Marc Chagall, uh, Le Coq Rouge and Le Pientre. And started formulating a song about a world of blue. Like both of those paintings have a lot of blue in them and like flight and movement. So that was the initial inspiration for it. After writing the first draft, she shared with Madugno and they continued working on the song. Although the music and the poetry of No Blue de Pinto de Blue were coming together, the song still wasn't 100%. In a separate article from La Repubblica, which was from 2008, uh, Madugno's wife recalled a dark and stormy night where Domenico was working at the piano. A storm blew open a window, and somehow that struck inspiration that led to the song's hook that we all know and love, and that has given the song its secondary title of Volare. Some of this is probably apocryphal. Yes, ap- apocryphal likely, but like no less delightful. The song was complete, and Modugno and Miliacci decide to enter it into the eighth edition of the Festival di San Remo. 391 songs entered the competition that year, with 135 making the shortlist. At this point in the process, there were going to be 20 songs that would be selected to advance to the actual competition at the beginning of February. And Nablu de Pinto de Blue did get past the first round, no problems there. But it did hit a snag in the shortlist round. Although the jury really liked the song, they weren't initially going to include it in the shortlist because they were having difficulty finding someone to actually perform the song. At this time, San Remo was functioning kind of like how Portugal's Festival de Canção operates, where you have the composers and then they're responsible for finding someone to perform the song in the competition. It may not necessarily be the composer who is the performer of the track. The challenge with this particular song was that it really was outside the norm for Italian music at the time, partly because it was so abstract. I'm going to send you 
the lyrics of the first verse translated into English. I'm not going to surprise you with Italian here. <laughs> yeah, if you wouldn't mind reading those out. I think that a similar dream will never come back. And I painted my hands and face blue. And suddenly the fast wind took me and made me fly in the infinite sky. I will fly. Oh, oh. I will sing. Oh, 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 oh. In the blue painted blue. So, yeah. I mean, even by today's standards, that's kind of out there if you mm-hmm. take the lyrics at face value. Plus, if you think of the melody of Valare, like, there's a swing influence in there. There's just this upbeat motion to the song this is a completely different sound than what you are typically getting in italian music san remo ran for three days there were 10 songs that would perform in the first two nights so basically two semifinals, and then 10 songs would advance to the final on the third night each song is performed twice and there are two separate arrangements there was a newcomer to the competition uh, his name was johnny dorelli and he was enlisted to give one of the performances of the song But the song still needed a singer for the other performance, and Domenico volunteered as tribute. That doesn't sound all that unusual. I mean, we we see it all the time. A lot of the songs are performed by the songwriter. Except this was the first time in San Remo's almost decade-long history that the songwriter performed their own song. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you have a song that is super abstract. It's completely outside what is the norm for Italian music. And songwriter is performing the song? What is going on here? It was pretty typical for San Remo entries to be sung sweetly, like standing behind the microphone with your hands either by your side or clasped to your chest. I probably need to fact check this, but I think it is physically impossible to hit that first volare without extending your arms. Try it now, listeners. Like you, you just can't mm-hmm. do it. And that is exactly what Domenico did during his performance. So, like again, like breaking another norm uh, for San Remo. But it was a smash in the competition. The audience was so enthusiastic about the entry that the show producers had to ask them to quiet down because it was interfering with the broadcast. There were 200 points available for the entire field in the final. Valare received 63 of those points. San Remo happened at the beginning of February of 1958, and Eurovision was happening in the Netherlands on March 12th. There were only 10 countries competing, and you didn't have to have a video ready for YouTube or anything like that, so there probably wasn't a big gap between the selection deadline and the actual performances at Eurovision. But even if Italy needed to make their choice immediately after San Remo, uh, now, Blue de Pinto de Blue was the obvious option. I mean, it was a huge hit at the festival, and ultimately it would go on to be Italy's best-selling single of 1958, and it is still one of the top 10 best-selling singles ever in Italy. So, pretty strong legacy there. Mm-hmm. At Eurovision, which was held in Hilversum, Domenico performed first. As is often the case with live events, particularly of this nature, the first performance had to shoulder some major technical issues, and there were some countries that reported not being able to hear or see the performance. Italy was given the opportunity to perform again at the end of the lineup. Despite this advantage, Italy did not win in 1958, and it was not the runner-up either. France ended up winning that year with André Claveau's Dour Mon Amour, and Lisa Sia, who was representing Switzerland for a third time out of three participations, finished second with the song Giorgio. Domenico 
did finish in third place, but it was a distant third place. This was back when the jury was just 10 people, each person saying which song was their favorite and just giving that one point. Denmark gave France nine of its 10 points. So if one jury really liked you, you were in really good position there. But this is pretty much the only bump in the incredibly long road for this song. Along with it being a smash in Italy, the song had made an impression in international markets. I did find a website called Secondhand Songs that catalogs cover versions of songs. As you had mentioned, this was a time where like everybody was singing all of the songs on all of the albums. And in 1958 alone... There were eight English covers of the song, four covers in Spanish, four in Finnish, nine in French, five in German, four in Swedish, a cover in Norwegian, Danish, Czech, and there were about two dozen Italian versions that also came out that year. So you have like 40-ish versions of the song in a very short amount of time. Everybody wanted their own volare, or at least in, the, in their own language. Exactly. Yeah. The really cool thing about this website is they also link out to Spotify and YouTube versions of the songs. So if you want to hear the Czech version, there is a link to that. It's pretty good. And this might also be a good time to talk about what the 1958 music scene was like in the United States. In September of 2008, Billboard's Ed Chrisman wrote a really detailed article, sort of like a 50-year retrospective about the state of the industry, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. But the word that kept coming up was turmoil. <laughs> Billboard magazine originally was covering TV, roadshows, music, pretty much anything that was advertised on a billboard, which is why it's called Billboard. This was the year that they switched to covering just music. Technologically speaking, stereophonic records were gaining popularity and becoming a more affordable option. It had survived long enough so that people were no longer saying that it was a fad. Rock and roll was also starting to pick up a lot of steam. More importantly, and related to that, uh, teenagers were becoming a specific market to target. There are now all these kids, and they have spending money, and they want to spend it on music. This led to price wars between like record stores and competitors like Woolworths and Sears and like places that did more than just sell records. Uh, there was even a Senate investigation on the matter. Like it, it was like getting to that level of chaotic. Uh, one of the main complaints as put forth in Billboard by a record dealer was that, quote, it's getting so everyone wants the cream and fewer are selling catalog, which used to be good for a lot of gravy. And I really wish people still talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like a very specific snapshot of lingo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you can almost picture exactly what the guy is wearing and probably snapping his fingers as he's saying it. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. This was also the time of the payola scandals. This was a major transition period in the music industry. It's also important to talk about like how Billboard was quantifying music at that point. In 1958, they introduced the Hot 100 chart, but this isn't the first time that they were tracking that sort of information. Uh, there used to be a top 100 chart, which would track things like jukebox plays and most plays by radio DJs and information about sales. Jukeboxes were becoming a little less popular, so that data wasn't really as helpful. And again, with the payola scandals, 
radio DJs were no longer a reliable source of information. So uh, the Top 100 chart, that debuted in 1955. It used a point system that's similar to the point system that's used today, where there's weight given based on the venue of where the music was played. It had to go through some rejiggering, and it ended up getting rebranded in 1958 as the Hot 100 chart, which we still reference today. The first version of the Hot 100 came out August 4th, and Valare debuted at 54 on that very first chart. The first ever number one song was Poor Little Fool by Ricky Nelson. The following week, Valare jumped to number two from 54, which held the record for biggest jump to number two for almost 42 years. Wow. There were only like a handful of challengers to that record. In 1999, Pearl Jam got their cover of the song Last Kiss, which is one of like the original version of that song is one of my least favorite songs. And Pearl Jam's cover of that song is so much worse. Like, and I, I was shocked that that is one of Pearl Jam's biggest hits. It had a very similar jump, but not quite the jump that Valare had. The record was eventually broken by the song Incomplete, which was the follow-up single to the Thong Song by Cisco in August of 2000. <laughs> I did one more Google yesterday before recording this. It was like, oh, oh I'm so glad I did that. Yes. Oh, like, are you familiar with this song at all? Because I had zero recollection of it. No, and we're in a delightful part of Stereogum's series on number ones where we're getting to the very edge of, oh, I actually remember paying attention to these things on the radio. And then occasionally, like, something will have gone to number one that I just do not remember. They're actually at about this time. Yes. I think they are in, like, July of 2000. Or they're, they're, yeah, we're in, like, are... July of 2000, and it is dire. Yeah, just like what what was Cisco's follow up to the thong song? Just like a great trivia question, just completely stymie me, and probably the large majority of the audience, because like, oh boy, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it's like a piano ballad type thing. It, it is pretty much the opposite of thong song. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, yeah, you have, you have to show that you have range. Getting back to the 1958 chart on August 18th, Valare reached number one. So that was the second song to reach the top. And it stayed number one for five non-consecutive weeks. It got knocked out on its second week, but then had a run of about a month uh, after that. And ultimately, it sold two million copies in 1958 in the U.S. alone. Part of that was probably helped by Modugno appearing on the Ed Sullivan show. Are you familiar with Ed Sullivan? Mildly familiar. There's a biography that came out called 150 Glimpses of the Beatles. It turns out that that is way too many glimpses for my attention span. But it did a very evocative job of describing sort of the pandemonium that just overtook our nation and in particular like the Ed Sullivan show audience when they debuted. The important thing to know about Ed Sullivan is if you are on that show, you are getting a gold star seal of approval. Are you familiar with the character Topo Gigio? The name rings a bell. I don't know if it was just like I went down the page on Wikipedia about puppets. Okay, yeah. So Topo Gigio was a mousey type puppet. Well, that, that's what Topo is in Italian as a mouse. Yeah, it was a character that would often appear on the Ed Sullivan show. And it turns out that Maria Perego, who created Topo Gigio, it was mentioned in her obituary that the character was inspired by Domenico Modugno. Like a, a sped up version of his voice is what 
kind of prompted the voice of Topo Gigio, which I thought was a like really interesting tie-in that I was not expecting. Again, do one more Google. So <laughs> uh, yes, always, always do the the, the follow up Google. Just like, what if Dave Seville and the Chipmunks, but Italian? Yes. And I'm glad that you mentioned Dave Seville. I actually have in my notes, Ben takes the bait. (laughs) 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 Along with Billboard rebranding and a whole bunch of changes happening in the music industry, this is also leading into the first annual Grammy Awards held in May of 1959. As you had mentioned earlier, Noblu de Pinto de Blue did win a couple of Grammys. And I wanted to send you a list of who the nominees were in a couple of the other categories so i have a hunch i know what one of them is <laughs> well here is the list for song of the year let me get that pasted in there there we go it's like and, and the nominees are uh no blue depinto de blue catch a falling star uh i'm familiar uh gigi i'm assuming yeah learner and low that is from the musical fever peggy lee and witchcraft frank sinatra yeah like these aren't some fly-by-night songs that nobody's ever heard of Gigi kind of jumps out to me, but like it was the, the the time that like yes everybody is paying attention to the theater, but like all the other but yeah these are all fairly these are I would call these standards. Yeah, let me send you the list for record of the year as well. Yes, yeah, we've got now blue depinted the blue, catch a falling star, fever, witchcraft, and the chipmunk song, David Seville and the chipmunks. <laughs> record of the year. Record that of is... the year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess it sort of makes sense because that was, I mean, it wasn't really new technology. It was just a way of the auto-tune to shares believe of 1958 that I guess that's a good analog. Yeah, sort of the novelty. We are celebrating the novelty. No, Blue, De Pinto De Blue did win Record of the Year and Song of the Year, which is like two of the major, major categories at the Grammys. And so far, the only non-English songs to win those awards. Modugno was also nominated for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. Uh, he lost out to Perry Como, who was nominated in the other categories as well. So really good year at the Grammys for this song. In 1959, there was also a movie inspired by the song. The movie's about a guy named Turi, a young Sicilian, who makes ends meet by doing some occasional work and singing in taverns in a popular district of Rome. Okay, sure, yeah. Domenico played Turi in the film. Franco Migliacci also has an appearance. He plays Pepe. I was actually able to find the movie on YouTube, like the entire movie. It's fully in Italian. This version did not have subtitles. I tried to use the caption, like auto-generated titles. And the AI needs some work. I'm pretty sure he was not talking about databases. Uh <laughs> Which came up in like the first 30 seconds. This movie's from 1959. So. <laughs> that is an amazing 18 months for a single song. That's not where the legacy ends, surprisingly. I want to send you this YouTube link. Jumping ahead to the late 70s. Okay. I have clicked on the link. And it's the 1976 Plymouth Volare. It is a new kind of American small car. Volare. And we've got like a stately piano cover as someone sells me on this beautiful, beautiful. 70s car. And so comfortable. Volare has a special suspension that gives you a smooth, comfortable ride. Like a big car. You'll love it. Volare. <laughs> and you notice that his arms moved when he said that. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no, no. 
just like when you sent me the lyrics in english i definitely thought about moving my arms at the i will fly part yeah you just cannot help it so yes that was an ad for the plymouth volare this was a car that replaced the plymouth valiant Sure, I don't really know about cars sure. from Detroit. And it was available as a wagon or a sedan or a coupe. That spokesperson was Sergio Franchi. He was a nightclub singer. He also appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. And that's really what pushed him into the mainstream. And he was the kind of performer, like he would be in Broadway shows. He'd work the Vegas circuit. Like it was definitely like that kind of lounge singer. Not not like sleazy lounge singer, but that era of performer. Should be noted that it was Volare with an accent over the E. So technically the Spanish version of Volare, which means pretty much the same thing. Thank you, Romance Languages, but they were still using the Italian song to advertise for it. It's just, yeah, um, one more Google. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the car won the Motor Trend Car of the Year, even though there were eight recalls in its first <laughs> year but you know just for like minor things like the suspension and or seat belts that could detach if you brake too hard that's assuming that the battery acid doesn't drip onto the brake lines that were rooted below the battery for some reason <laughs> and then also just major major rusting problems but yeah motor trend car of the year did all of the other cars under consideration eat from the seafood buffet? Uh, probably. <laughs> the car ended up being discontinued after 1980, d- despite having an excellent song as, as its jingle. But the most delightful thing that I found related uh, to Valare, aside from that commercial, apparently the car driven by the Belcher family on Bob's Burgers is a Valare. <laughs> is a Valare. Oh, that's, that's delightful. That's a fun Easter egg. And the fact that it was probably a 1976, even though that is almost 50 years old at this point. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that, that absolutely, no, that absolutely tracks. They're driving a car that should be dead. Getting into more of the legitimate legacy of Volare. As you mentioned, there are dozens and dozens of covers of this song. I, I think on that website that I had mentioned earlier, they had about 300 covers listed, like through the decades. Uh, and a few of them like have charted in the U.S. Uh, Bobby Rydell did a cover in 1960. That reached number four. El Martino did one in 1975. That peaked at 33. Dean Martin had his cover. The Gypsy Kings did a Spanish-language cover of it, which reached number one on the Latin charts in 1989. Skimming through that list, uh, apparently David Bowie did a version for a movie called Absolute Beginners from 1986. Are you familiar with this movie at all? I feel like I have totally scrolled past that on some streaming service. Uh, Barry White also did a cover of it. Um, It's not as sexy as you would think it would be. He does the full Italian of it, which is great. But it's it's much more joyful and playful rather than it just being like all deep and baritone. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) in... 2006, there was a 50th anniversary special for Eurovision where there was a vote on what was the best Eurovision song of all time at that point. Remember, this is six years before Euphoria. Mm -hmm. The winner of that was Waterloo, which... It's not all that surprising. I mean, that also had a monumental international success that led to like ABBA becoming ABBA. When accepting the honor, Benny Anderson from ABBA said that he voted for Valare on that one. I thought that was a nice thing to mention. Mm-hmm. One more recent version of Valare appreciation happened at the Viña del Mar International Song Festival, our, our favorite song contest from Chile. Yes. 
And in the 2010 edition of that, they had an international competition featuring songs from the past. So these were all cover songs that were going to be performed rather than new entries. There was a lot of crossover with our interests in mind. Spain's representative sang Eris too. Uh, so- solid choice, yes. Uh, the U.S. was represented by Elliot Yamin from the fifth season of American Idol. Uh, he does a version of Rock Around the Clock, another song that like I really cannot stand. <laughs> but he sells it. Uh, yeah, he survived El Monstro and uh, ended up finishing in the top five for the competition. But the winner of the contest was Simona Galeandro, and she did a cover of Volare. Um, so yeah, kind of getting the bona fides from Vina Del Mar, which uh, I thought was a nifty little tie-in. That's pretty much all I've found in terms of like where people are now, because we've mentioned a, a, a number of people in, in this episode. Sergio Franchi, the spokesperson from the car ad, uh, he died in 1990. His last TV appearance was on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee in 1989. So yeah, he was he was performing uh Right up till the end, which I, I think is pretty cool. Domenico Modugno, uh, he had a stroke in 1984 that left him partially paralyzed and kind of forced him out of doing like a full-time performing career. He would do concerts now and then, but he ended up shifting over into politics and he represented Turin in Italy's parliament starting in 1986. And speaking of Vigna del Mar, Modugno criticized Pinochet's regime and that caused him to be banned from ever entering Chile. Good for him. He died of a heart attack in 1994. Johnny Girelli, he would come back to San Remo the following year with another song with Domenico, and they won that as well. He would go on to compete in San Remo a total of nine times, and he reached the final in eight of them. So yeah, this was a nice little boost for his career. Yeah, strong track record. He's still with us and was performing as recently as 2007. Franco Migliacci is also still with us. He's had a career as a TV and film director. He still has a website. Uh, That's where I got a lot of information uh, about the song. And Cisco was a contestant on the American Song Contest this year, (laughs) representing Maryland. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just like this is the fun, this is the fun montage at the end of the documentary series where, we, where like just text appears on the screen it's like it just tells us where everybody is. Yeah, this was such a delight to pull together, and it just makes me appreciate the song all the more. Thinking of the most recent cover versions, there was the audience sing along at this year's Eurovision. It's one of those songs where it's like even if you don't know the words, everybody's able to hop in at the volare. So you do, you do spiritually know the words exactly, and that that's probably part of the magic of the song where it's like oh yep i i i could participate it's it's the five golden rings aspect of it so yeah, you can't re- you can't remember if it's like maids of milking or swans of swimming like further down but you know it's five golden rings and then from there you can take it home exactly i i'm so glad that we had the opportunity to explore this and what better way to say arrivederci to our host country of italy for the 2022 contest so that's going to do it for this episode of the euro what thanks for listening the Euro What Podcast is hosted by Mike McComb, that's me, and Ben Smith. That's me. You can follow the Euro What on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app for choice. If you'd like to support the show, we are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash eurowhat. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at eurowhat.com. If you'd like to contact us, we're at eurowhat on Twitter, or you can email eurowhatpodcast at gmail.com next time on the Euro What, we're celebrating Eurovision New Year and the start of our sixth season. 